from Sector 001 in the Alpha Quadrant, this is the Omega Directive, a Star Trek podcast. Episode 8, Trek Travel, Take 3, The Doctor is In. Okay, welcome again to the Omega Directive. I am again your host, Steve Atwell. My guest tonight is a Star Trek author, actor, editor, archivist, consultant, interviewer, producer, who (laughs) got started with the Star Trek, the Next Generation uh, companion. He's also appeared as an actor playing Dr. McCoy in Star Trek Continues, the fan film series. And he's written, um, besides the Next Generation companion, he's also written the Star Trek Stellar Cartography Map and Book Set, which I need to get a copy of. And he mm-hmm. used to write regularly for Star Trek Magazine. He is in charge of Portal 47. He's trying to put together a film called The Con of Wrath, which we'll get to in a bit, as well as various travel destinations. He is the one, the only Dr. Nemechek, Dr. Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hi, Larry. Thank you for doing Hi, this. Hi, Steve. Well, I was... Uh... Yeah, don't don't make me a real doctor in real life. I might get in trouble for that. I um, won't. <laughs> no, well, thanks thanks for having me here on the show. And um, wow, that was starting to put even me to sleep. So I, uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. So you wrote the Next Generation Companion, which came out in 1993. Should after five seasons of Next Generation. Ninety three. And uh, what led you to uh, want to uh, put it together in the first place? Uh, well, um, after I kind of got over my first wave of, you know, fandom and finding Star Trek when I was in, you know, as a kid, I was in junior high, thanks to my ninth grade science teacher. I, um, you know, I loved everything about Star Trek, but it was the world and the uh, the fact that they kept it so consistent and, you know, with a, with a boner here or there, but. And then when I found out, you know, you, then you get the making of Star Trek and you found out how much time and effort and how crazy work it was to do that. And then you saw people collating all that information and, um, you know, like B. Joe's Concordance and the tech manual and the blueprints and all the, you know, the medical reference and mm-hmm. poster book and all that. Anyway, I just, the Concordance really made me crazy, especially when it came to all the, all the stars and planets out there. But it was, it was really all, you know, what we now think of as canon and continuity that drove me crazy, and then uh, crazy good. Yeah. And uh, and then years later, I, you know, would read um, the making of and read all those behind the scenes stories and uh, see how how different books were put together. And when Alan Asherman they did a compendium for um, uh, the original series, just mm-hmm. just all that kind of so all everything like the two sides of background, you know, the in universe. You know, canon made up, consistent thing, and then just the behind the scenes stories. So, I uh, went next year, and and I had wanted to do all that with the original series, and never really had a chance. And I was in, I was just south of you. I was in Oklahoma. Yes. Now, growing up in Oklahoma, so I was out in the middle of nowhere. You know, especially back then, we had no internet to connect us, really, and you could really feel isolated. And uh, aside from your fans, your friends around you, right, and your local, you know, friendly neighborhood uh, convention or whatever, but. I when three, two or three things all happened at once. One, I I got a Mac and learned how to do Mac and desktop publishing and got a laser printer. I was working in news, and the next generation came back, 
And I thought, well, I'm just going to start doing a, a Bijo type concordance on my own and see what see what happens. And if I just make a few zines and sell them, that's fine. And uh, but I wanted to know the information and have it organized. And it was a fresh start, you know. So I did. And after I put the first one out for the first season, um, Richard Arnold, who was Gene's assistant then, got a hold of it and made copies for all the writers and kept promoting me to Pocket Books, the licensing department. And back then, everything was very basic and simple, and they were scared to <laughs> they were scared to spend any money on Star Trek because I thought it would be a bomb like everything for the first movie was, more or less. But, you know, it took four or five years, but they finally said, hey, let's do this. Only you have three months to do it. Right. And that's like, of course, of course I can do it in three months. Yeah. I should have asked about your background. You did grow up somewhere in the wilds of Oklahoma Territory. Yeah. It wasn't so uh, – many have many would say they grew up much wilder. But, no, I was south of Norman where the University of Oklahoma is and south of a small town called Noble that had a huge school district bigger than the town and actually out on an acreage in a place that later got incorporated as Slaughterville. So, yeah, I, I have some – I have my rural growings up. So it was like you were, you know, we weren't too far out. We had TV and telephone. <laughs> yeah. Everything. Well, so and, what, uh, as a kid, what kind of other hobbies and interests did you have? And were you, in fact, a nerd back then? Oh, well, so you didn't think of it as a nerd. But yes, to answer your question, I mean, I had too many interests. I loved, well, I loved history since I was like in grade school. And I was a pretty good artist cartoonist, but I built models, I built model rockets. I was a model railroader. I collected stamps. Um, what else? I just had too much, you know. If I, you know, I had a chemistry set and you know did labs, I just did too much. I see. I see. I see. <laughs> I had no. I had no idea. I mean, I loved history. I had no idea what I was going. As I was like going through high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. Right. Uh, in in real life. But I wound up with uh, TV and radio and journalism and, and theater and um, kind of got there eventually. But, yeah, I had way too many interests. So, but you know what? What's funny is back then a nerd or a geek was like a put-down, and I would just say I had, you just had many hobbies, right? I just had many hobbies. And Star Trek was in there. Oh, of course. And Anne seemed to use a lot of them, you know, between the model building and the, everything else and doing, you know, a little home movie movies, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So you weren't um, – so writing was not something that you uh, thought of as when I grew up, this was what will make my name or anything. Oh, no. No, no. But but um, I got infected with the background bug. I mean the first thing I remember doing was first I was mad because the making of Star Trek didn't have an index. Mm -hmm. So I went through and I didn't make an index for it, but I went through and pulled out all the sections and organized them. And I, I typed up my own eight or ten page – thing that had everything organized so it wasn't all scattered through the book when they talked about the technology or the bridge layout and all that stuff and i did that like a year or two before the tech manual came out and then the tech manual's out and and i yeah i wrote and i made explanatory i mean i wrote i did term papers and things it wasn't times in high school that i thought of like journalism right i took this paper and uh, speech both and i went oh and then then when you take your acts and they do that career thing my number one career thing was communications you know, writing, uh, whether it was like radio, TV or writing or journalism or whatever. I was like, oh, I just had never thought of it like that. Right. In, in ninth grade, when we had to do a thing about what I what a career I could do, I had like hobby store owner. I mean, I didn't know. Yeah. 
when we took the uh, testing when I was a kid, it, it said for me as a uh, commercial artist. Mm-hmm. So I've made my um, living uh, as a uh, numbers cruncher at the uh, uh, U.S. government. But that's beside the point. Okay, there you go. I am an actor. I am a comedian. I am a cosplayer. Um, so I have shown something for my value, I think. Anywho, so you wrote the uh, Next Generation Companion. According to Wikipedia, you also wrote a concordance and episode guide for the Next Gen, as well as... Yeah, that's what that's what Richard Arnold saw, took back, and made copies of for the writers because there wasn't any, there was no internet, there was no memory alpha, and there was no commercial, you know, Okuda's encyclopedia. So, um, so that's what they used for the first several years. Every year, I'd do an update and sell it, and I would send, and he would help me with spell. All I needed, because you would like frame grab the forehead VCR and get the little Okudagram in jokes, is you know what we think of it now. And I would get all that recorded too, so and use that. So. And were you approached by Star Trek magazine to uh, write the column, or did you uh, suggest it to them, approach them? Oh no, they they came to me, but that was after. See, everything kind of you know when finally about the fifth, sixth year of Next Generation, and when they decided when Paramount thought maybe we can make more money with another show, and DS Nine happened. So like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five. Um, I was actually in England for the first big British, um, the Royal Albert Hall show when the Generations movie premiered there, and they had a big convention in the Royal Albert Hall. And in the press room, the editor of, of the brand new Star Trek Titan magazine, which was only in the UK then, because we had the communicator here, uh, he approached me about just writing. And then after about a year, they said, do you want to do a Q&A column? And I said, sure. And I think... In, in the beginning, you said I used to do that column. I, I still do it. So it's it was 20 years old last fall, which is kind of amazing. 100 columns in 20 years. Oh, I didn't realize. For some reason, I was thinking that Star Trek magazine was no longer in print. Uh, it is on JPEGs. I mean, it's on uh, PDFs, but no, it's still very much Dead Tree Media. You can still get it. Oh, good. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I haven't had an actual copy in about 20 years. Okay, there you go. Many, you're not alone. <laughs> right. but no, it's still there. It's still there. So you mentioned conventions. When did you start going to Trek conventions and stuff? My The very first Trek convention was really like a nostalgia everything convention, a little one in Oklahoma City that I got my mom to take me to before I could drive. They advertised on afternoon Star Trek, and uh, she just took me for an afternoon. There wasn't a lot there, but I saw some like big screen episodes and saw the bloopers for the first time, and uh, like I was like a sophomore junior in high school or something and then my first oh and then nothing after that for several years but then um my the summer after my freshman year in college and getting more worldly and a, a friend of mine um and i that i met that year we went to we went to tulsa like three hours away three four hours away and didn't did the whole overnight convention thing for the first time at ocon that year and uh, i met russell bates who was oklahoma and in a in a Cheyenne Arapahoe Indian who co-wrote How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth for, for the animated series yeah. and which won the Emmy. And that was my first taste of like meetings because it wasn't a stars, you know, it was a lit con, although they embraced media and um, good old Ocon downtown the Mayo and in Tulsa. And uh, he complimented me on the props that I, my medical kit that I built and said, that's as good as what they have in Hollywood. You just can't see it on camera very well. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And he sat and talked to me about, you know, 
his experience with Gene Kuhn and all these names and these books that I had barely, you know, barely gotten to know, but knew they were big people. And I, I just I'm shocked as the years have gone by appreciating that. I mean, I, he passed away just this last year. Sadly, I was trying to get back to see him and I, I sat down with him about a year, about about 10 years ago when I was first blogging Trekland and did a long interview with him, like a half hour interview on camera with him. But um, but yeah, that was my when I was in college. And then the next within a year, we were doing like one day mini cons at my cult. We'd started a club and doing mini cons and the whole thing and, you know, let Oklahoma fandom know about it. So we were I was, you know, getting a little savvy and sophisticated, even in my little bitty way. <laughs> back then well that's awesome um so uh in more recent years um you decided to commemorate the infamous con of wrath by putting together a film about th- that uh unique experience could you please tell us a bit about it <laughs> well for one thing i was there that was my first huge big real road trip to a convention in 82 and uh, two other friends of mine and my little brother all went down, and you know it was a full page added star log. Now, now this was uh, somewhere in Texas, right? This was Houston. Houston. Yep, and it was two weeks after the Wrath of Khan premiered in theaters, you know, na- nationwide. So they were all hot, and, and the entire cast except for Leonard Nimoy, who then later wanted to come with it right beforehand, and and they said no, but we're going to do this more often. Come later. It was <laughs> that was so not. That was one thing that is not the same as today. Part of this documentary was uh, a personal story of me being there and seeing a huge, amazing national moment uh, going to meltdown, and yeah. then uh, and then and then still happen, and realize as the years went by how amazing that was that it didn't just melt down or or melt down within you know, like a few hours. Uh, you know, so they, they go through the motions for a few hours and then it goes away. They really went ahead with this, and, and the Wrath of Khan was so much of a every. There was kind of a national. Now that's more like it moment with most fans. Right. And um, and they were so flying high. It was Hard Bennett and Merritt Buttrick and Kirstie Alley and all the all the regulars, um, and Laura Banks who played one of Khan's two henchmen, not Ricardo Montalban, although like Leonard, he wanted to get in. When they did it again, and they were going to repeat this because the whole point was, as it got closer in, they there was a regular convention in Houston, Houston Con, and then this was a side. Basically, it was like a rock show, you know. It was kind of like for Star Trek. It was like an arena show for Star Trek, and they had it at the arena where the Houston Rockets used to play, mm-hmm. and uh, which is funny. Today, it's uh, Joel Osteen's mega church. <laughs> but uh, no, it was it was. Um, you know, it was one of those things that happened, and I took pictures, and we all had this tucked away memory of this crazy thing, and we stayed a day and left, and, and, and you were kicked out of your room because there was a whole series of things that happened. And then about now, eight years ago, I ran into a guy at the after party at SoonerCon who I heard talking about uh, Con of Wrath and, and uh, the Ultimate Fantasy in Houston, and I walked over, and I said, were you there? And he goes, I was the tech director for the stage. And we got to talking, and I just decided I just had a giant light bulb go off because I'd want to do something with media, not not be a word guy, but be a, you know, camera thing, video thing, and um, and uh, and and I just said this can be done. This needs to be recorded. Mm-hmm. It needs to be, and my God, we could even if we got enough people, um, if like Harb Binner or Walter Koenig would talk to me about this, um, we've got a documentary, and I knew knew them both. I knew most of the original cast decently enough to ask them 
and and thankfully Harv and Walter, who were who were also the ringleaders of saving it yeah. on the celebrity side, both said, uh, "Hey, not just yeah, but hell yeah." So we were off and running. Yeah. So to go back for our listeners who don't know, this was uh, infamous because of poor planning, poor management, and a lack of funding. And as I understand it, uh, promises were made for finances that did not um, materialize, but they decided to go ahead and hold it anyway. Is that correct? Well, it was uh, it was it was put on by fans who had put on conventions. Mm-hmm. The big leap was in doing the stage show, and it was not outside. It was all a bunch of AV and tech and event people, so it was not outside their expertise realm. What happened was. And what we've uncovered, well, for years people blamed the promoter, you know, running off with the money. Well, there was no money to run off with. Yeah, you you might say – I I would chalk it up to naivete more than mismanagement, but the biggest thing was the naivete. And what – I didn't go into this to be 60 minutes. I just wanted to record the story and have the humans and also talk about how fandom now versus then for for younger fans and for modern fans. And, you know, we're in a cell phone, uh, iPad you know, internet age, how how things were different then, but at the same time, how fandom and culture and pop culture and all of that, celebrities and fans, how all of it was exactly the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was different and what wasn't different, but mainly what was exactly the same. And what really happened was that these, these idealistic kids in their 20s and early 30s were perfectly capable of doing this. It's just that what we stumbled into was that the local – Monopoly producer, you know, like turnkey start to finish producer of all the big show, you know, rock concerts and, and musicals and anything like that, big events that came to town did it and they took, I don't know, 40% out of the, out of the, out of the gate. And these guys said, uh, when they came calling and heard about it, they said, you know what? No thanks. We got it handled. And there's a lot of, because people were calling to get tickets and being told at the ticket offices and some of the, Pre-internet, they used to have like big department stores would sell tickets. I know that sounds funny now, but you could get tickets at Sears and Wards and you know whatever for, for different events at different arenas. And a lot of people calling and finding hearing that it was sold out, right? Because they had, they had national. So it, there's a little bit of a conspiracy thing here. But whatever happened, uh, people were calling and being told it sold out. So they thought they had three sold out. 18,000 seat shows when it was like, you know, uh, not 54,000, it was um, uh, 1,000, 1,200, and 800 mm. <laughs> for the three shows. But that's what the thing is. They didn't just do it for a day. They went ahead and did their whole weekend plan. But that rippled back on the convention and the hotel where the convention was, and it, 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 and it just spun off all these crazy sidebar stories, some of which I was part of, like I was there. But we wound up talking to uh, most all the celebrities, like uh, uh, Harv, who passed away a couple years ago. Yeah. But Walter and Michelle and George and Laura Banks and uh, Starlog Magazine got pulled in. Um, talked to um, talked to him, the editor that was the MC, and uh, people talk. You know, Merritt Buttrick has passed and Dee has passed. But Jimmy's widow Wendy, she talked for Jimmy. So it, we've got to have all of them, but we also have tons of fans who showed up and t- tons of the original staff and the creators, and including the guy who, who people thought of was a crook for years and years, who wasn't, 
um, he was a colorful character, but he was not a crook. And uh, anyway, so we did that. And dealers, the dealers that have been on the circuit, some of them are still out there. I'd, I'd love to do a documentary just on some of the dealers that have been around for 40 years. So how far are you along in putting together a documentary, and when is it going to be finished and released? When can I watch it at home? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. People are starting to get a little impatient. It was always a shade tree project. I went along. I didn't like I'm doing it in nine months. You know, and Ira's feeling the heat here about getting his DS9 documentary together. Right. So no, we were always going to be. But right now we are starting on post now. There's still two or three people, including a couple of celebrities I'd like to maybe get. But um, there's still a donation page, not a Kickstarter because it's been up for seven or eight years. But there's still a at conofrath.com. You can still donate some, you know, little to large amount, and uh, still be a producer if you have want to get involved that way. But uh, no, we're on it uh, now. The, we pretty much stopped shooting everybody, filming everybody, and hopefully in the next year, year and a half or so. Okay. Yeah. At this point in the proceedings, I would pause for a commercial break or to sponsors, but I don't have sponsors yet. <laughs> It's still a small and growing podcast. Um, we can pick up some. I was going to plug in an old commercial advert that I found at YouTube from the past. Um, my friend James Hams, who runs the Trexphere Network, cautioned me not to be treading on any sort of a copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that Paramount Parks won't mind if I air coming attractions for the Star Trek Las Vegas uh, Star Trek experience at this point in time, 20 well, years since old. There, when, since, since there is no uh, Paramount Parks anymore, you might be okay there. Exactly. So let's take it for granted and plug it in. Fool! You will regret defying me! For 30 years, you've sat and watched. Now, it's your turn to enter the 24th century. That way to show them. That way to show them. Damage report! Star Trek The Experience at the Las Vegas Hotel. This time, it's real. Opens January 4th. So... I did want to talk to you about uh, Star Trek travel. I know that you have been involved in running your own travel uh, tours uh, destination thing. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun, by the way. That was really cute that you dug that out. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Terrace Cassidy has a company. He's in Canada, in Alberta, uh, like out of um, Calgary, called Geek Nation Tours that he's had for several years, probably about eight years now. And they do all kinds. They go to conventions, but they also go – they do history and military tours, that kind of thing. But also like Gen Con and, and um, some of the some of the uh, big conventions, Comic Cons and things. And he came to me in, my God, now, 2011 mm-hmm. and said, do you think a Star Trek film site tour would work? And I said, oh, yes. So we um, – the first year was 2012, and uh, we made it. We wound up. After we planned it, made it for the like week to ten days before Trek Vegas, mm-hmm. and we've run that in every two, two years is about what the demand holds up to. So we ran 2012, 2014, and 2016 for the 50th. We expanded it and had some uh, San Francisco sites, and it, we wound up having it both um, 
like actual locations where they filmed, and some of them are famous. Like everybody knows Vasquez Rocks, the Gorn fight, right, Marina, and some that are famous but not well known at all. And that's been a mix of things, and from all across the series, and even even the Kelvin movies and and things. Now most of Discovery is shot around uh, Toronto, so we're we're not quite there yet, and they haven't done that much, you know, location shooting. But um, we we also gone we have gone to places that were like mentioned, but they weren't really shooting there, so um, which was fun. So after 2016, uh, we rested a year. And the next tour is coming out in 2019. So uh, we are madly working on it as we speak. But if you check out the Geek Nation Tour Facebook page or the, the page and just get in touch, write to Terrace. Uh, but he hires me to run the Star Trek tour. There's a lot of other ones. You might find something else you like. And right. there there's options to, you know, there's uh, pieces of that. But we're going to be doing San Francisco again as well as um, L.A. But on the side, also, what I'm launching this summer I've had it available, but it's been kind of small on my website at LarryNimichak.com. But what I'm kind of relaunching and rebranding in a bigger way is my own Trekland Treks just one-day tours here in L.A. If you come – if you're already here in L.A. for a vacation or a visit or something, uh, you can get in touch with me, and uh, I will we'll kind of put together a menu. There's a menu of places to go, like two bigs and two littles and a lunch and we'll have from a six to eight hour, depending on what you have, and the rate, we'll do a, you know, for two or three people. If you've got a big group, we can go big, but we'll um, do, we'll put together a customized uh, little day tour for you. That sounds, uh, that sounds exciting. And then this fall, I have, I'm still working on the dates, but I'm going to just have one where if people want to just aim for that date in a September, October, it's almost like a a con on wheels in a way, a con on stage and on wheels because we're going to do that and then that night have a live show with uh, kind of like a portal live or a Trekland live with uh, three or four, I don't know, one or two or three background folks that no one's ever heard from that have amazing stories that I've uncovered for the portal, uh, you know, that have worked on various shows, including the original series. Mm. And, um, and have a live show and have – that's a local thing also for just one-off people and have it live streamed. But the people who are there for the tour, they can have a package that includes that. And then the next day have a have a kind of a premium level VIP day for those that want to do that. So I'm going to – that's getting planned. Um, that's Trekland Treks and Trekland Live, and that will be something I'm going to hopefully announce at Vegas and have for um, the October-ish window. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. How hard is it to get in touch with these people? To, because I keep getting hold of, well, I've sent off invitations to a couple of actors who appeared on the series, not received any sort of response. And I have a couple of, of writers that I've approached who said they would be interested in doing this podcast, but then have not followed up with setting up an actual time and date. So, well, you know, um, there's you've got a spectrum there, just like you do in any kind of billing. And uh, a lot of the people I have on Portal are people who are very humble because they're 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 stage people, they're like stand-ins and stunt people and assistant directors, but also uh, department heads. Um, had Michael Westmore and um, you know got to get around to Dan Curry, but a lot of the first and second tier in visual effects and props and costumes, uh, art department people, graphics, all of that, and stand-ins and and uh, Finally did a writer. 
I have a level called Deck One, where I, which I save more for the um, actors and the writer producers. But a lot of the folks that I just mentioned there, we've gone through three years of them, were folks a I knew and worked with all the years of the original Star Trek.com and Communicator and the Fact Files and doing my books and doing interviewing through the movies and the shows from late Next Generation onward to the end of Enterprise, and some from the Kelvin movies, and then now again some from Discovery, but Discovery is still kind of in clampdown mode. You know, right. <laughs> CBS is a little paranoid about letting them talk about something, even if it's already happened. So we don't want to get any, any body in hot water that way, but, um, but still working on that. That'll ease up as time goes by. Yeah. My main thing with Portal 47 is getting the people who people have, fans have never heard from. They're not considered convention material. They're not considered even interview material. And even podcasters either haven't had them on or have no clue who they are. Right. So that's, that's the thing. And, but they've got stories and material that's, you know, that's, um, and some of them are really good talkers, but they've got great, cause they not only talk about, they talk about their job, what they do, how they fit into any TV show, much less Star Trek. And a lot of them will tell you, you know, like I've worked 30 years and my years on Star Trek were the most, were the, the best ones. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about, you know, the actors and the cast or the writers they work with or the guest cast or, other people on the crew, and the farther back you go, we've lost so many people. Um, the folks that we've had on from the original series are just priceless because they talk about all those names that you know, but no one ever had a chance to see or really interview or talk with, you know, much less today. So yeah. that's what's special to me about Portal 47. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I started this podcast because I wanted to do a general interest nerdish type podcast and realized that I don't really know that many people outside of Star Trek, but I do know people who have done Star Trek, mostly I met through Facebook. Um, there's one background extra player that I would really love to have on as a guest, and if you can never get a hold of, maybe send him my way, as Michael Wajax, according to Wikipedia, or to the Memory Alpha, who is a large um, African-American actor, musician, who appeared in almost every episode of Deep Space Nine in the background. And what was his name again? Michael, Michael. Wajax, W-A-G-J-A-C-S. <laughs> and I watch, and I'm like, oh, there he is again, there he is again, there he is again. Okay. And I, at, years ago, I went to Memory Alpha, and there's no mention of him. Finally, after a few years, he does get a mention. Well, you know, this is all, you talk about Memory Alpha. Memory Alpha is basically what I did on paper. Like, before it was, that, it was it's ba- basically updated B. Joe. And I did that generate, and then about what two oh three oh four oh five, about the time I was feeling guilty for not being able to keep my team. I did the first two years of DS9. I got five years of next gen done, and the first two years of DS9. And then it just, it, you know, the hobby. I thought when I was out working out here that it would be faster and easier, but it becomes the. I'm sorry, I'm not getting paid for it. So <laughs> things that get, even if they're Star Trek and they're fun, it's hard to do. But I, I've, you know, gone. I've done bits and pieces as I needed for other projects. But um, but then Memory Alpha came along, and I felt less guilty for for not carrying all that on my shoulders. But then it's funny because a lot of what we wrote, like interview material, turns I, the the first you know few years of Memory Alpha, it was like oh that's okay, you know like a fourth of Memory Alpha is me anyway, and you know a fourth of it is the Akudas, and a fourth of it is me, and a fourth of it is Mark Altman and Ed Gross, and a fourth. And, and then when they do have people, a lot of times they don't take quotations. When actual people are interviewed on a lot of podcasts, they don't take it from those podcasts, which is also odd. Hmm. But anyway, 
but yeah, it just takes – there's just so much massive amount. That's great. A lot of those people that were extras and they wore makeup heads you know, and all of that kind of stunt people. That so much Star Trek is one of the rare things where people care who was the second assistant, uh, you know, caterer. <laughs> so yeah, so those people actually, it's kind of cool. And people that never thought they've worked a billion other jobs, and for, you know, three days or one year they worked on Star Trek, and it's the thing that people, you know, know their name for, which is kind of even if they're not an actor, you know, they're just they're just kind of shocked. So yeah. Uh, we're the type. I mean, I was watching the original pilot for the uh, Greatest American Hero, and at one point I recognized some guy that um, was in there. I'm like, "That's that is Matt alone," and the mm-hmm. guy with me was like, "Who?" I'm like, he was a stunt coordinator on Star Trek. He appeared in several episodes of Next Gen, DS9, and I think uh, Voyager. And like, who? Ah, anyway. Yep, and Dennis has been a Portal 47 guest and was amazing and had a ton of pictures. That's the thing. These people also, when they come, and we, we're on a free conference call system, so we have video. We have webcam capacity, although we don't always use it, depending on the guest, and we have roundtables with just me. And whatever we do that, we I always use the uh, – I call it the slideshow capacity, but the, you know the bulletin board or the, uh, uh, the PowerPoint. And if people have – whether I'm showing web pages and news stories or things from my own archives or our guests bring along their personal pictures that no one has seen. And we have those, which is an amazing benefit. And Dennis has a ton of, had a ton of pictures like that. And he's got a lot on his, on his own page and on his memory alpha page, but he had some that hadn't been out. And I had a few that he hadn't seen or hadn't seen in ages. So, but yeah, that's, it's amazing when you kind of pull around and you, you cross those circles, you know, and overlap. Yeah. Um, so Portal 47 is a website, correct? Yes, Portal 47. It's it's a page. You can go to it through LarryNimichek.com is is everything of mine, uh, and I'm behind on getting Trekland Treks there. But uh, Portal47.net is its own page too, and then there's there's a Facebook page for it. But there's also a public group of people that I think that it's invites. So if you want to invite yourself and answer one question, you can come on. But it's mainly set up for people who are canon interested or just Star Trek background interested, and it's a it's a sane place. I, somebody told me one time that, and we have a secret page for the Portal Forty Seven. I say secret; it's a members only page, hmm. so I can make announcements, and they can as they get to know. We are, I have a great group now. It's it's getting it's over it's around sixty now, and uh, growing. And we have Australians and and Brits and. Germans and Austrians and Swiss and Americans and Canadians and and um, but it's a they, somebody said it was a safe space but it's a it's a it's curated a little bit but it's mainly people who they disagree but it's there's nobody shooting from the hip it's not crazy hater fandom or anything and people are you know reasonable even when they disagree people have their favorites mm-hmm. and uh, but um, it's a good group but I started a page. That's Portal 47 adjacent, called the Observation Lounge on Facebook. So, anybody out there listening, if you're a, if you're a, uh, you know, if you didn't just fall off a turnip truck, <laughs> and you enjoy Star Trek background and, um, uh, you know, behind the scenes background and canonizing, uh, you should go over and give it a look and answer the one little question, and uh, I'll let you in. I will do that after we get off here. Okay. Well, that was for all the listeners, too, Steve. Oh, not just... it, I understand. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I'm saying it as a listener as well as a well as oh. a fan in general. So it's an instant testimonial is what it is. Okay. Yes. So I did want to ask, talk about Star Trek travel, vacation destinations, holiday getaways, real and imagined past, present, and future. We mentioned uh, Paramount Parks earlier, which is no longer uh, a functioning um, entity. I did manage to get out to the Las Vegas Star Trek Experience uh, Hotel, uh, the Hilton, I believe it was. Good on you. Uh, Memorial Day in 1998. So I was there just at the beginning, or just a couple months after they opened. It, yeah, like five. It opened the first. Oh, it was insane! It was the first Saturday in January, after the New Year's. So it was kind of, yeah. And I have very fond memories of that, of doing the um, Klingon experience thrill ride, and I was uh, so shocked when they closed it down just before the. Uh, Abrams, first Abrams film came out. It's like, where's the logic in that? But oh, it's a long story, but yeah, it was uh, the the after. So there was, uh, and back then it was just Paramount, right? Before the Viacom divorce, so we only talked about Paramount, Paramount, and its division, Paramount Parks, uh, all loved that being there. And then years later, when they after the divorce, they spun off Paramount Parks, and a company called Cedar Fair bought a lot of the asset, uh, bought some of the the regular theme parks around the country, like the Carowinds, I think, in the on the in the Carolinas somewhere. Uh, anyway, but they bought the experience, and so by the time the ten-year deal ran out, uh, Paramount slash CBS and Cedar Fair both wanted to continue the deal, but at the old Las Vegas Hilton there, ever since the management that signed the original contract, when the management turned over. No other hotel owners after that point liked it. They kept thinking it was a waste of time and space, and they could put something in there to attract a much bigger crowd. None of them had any great love for it. Now, that said, they it was there, and it was run by Paramount Parks and then later Cedar Fair, so it wasn't up to the hotel to starve it down or anything. But when the deal was up, Paramount and said, look, let's just – what you just said, let's extend it one more year at least – you know, through June of '09, and they refused, so it died. And they talked for years. Oh, we're putting in a Michael Jackson museum. We're, they had all these like Vegas-ish touristy things that we're going to put in there. And if you saw as it went by, years went by, and nothing ever went in. And and karmically, the Hilton just spiraled down. And um, I mean, the the, con- the four to five days week of convention there at Vegas was like the single biggest event that hotel had regularly every year. And they never would acknowledge how much money at the bars and the room and all that consistently that they made from the fans until the last year or two. And the bartenders would tell us. And then after it closed down, the bartenders that were up at the Space Quest, which was just adjacent, they would say they had no idea or they would never they, – they miss it so much now and they would not treat it that way with any respect you know, the hotel back in the day, which was very sad. But, you know, the Hilton, they lost their branding. It became something else, and it totally sold. So, I blame, you know, karma's a bitch. <laughs> I blame Paris Hilton and her ill-advised um, reality shows. Oh, okay. You know what? <laughs> I think Paris Hilton is cool enough. She would have said, yeah, keep it, if she'd been consultant. But I don't think she gave a flip about the little Las Vegas Hilton. <laughs> right. But so I was, I'd gone on to YouTube to try to track down videos of the uh, Klingon encounter and the Borg encounter. 
And in doing so, I came across a clip of something from the Universal theme park in the early 90s with the original crew. Oh, yeah. Which I had not heard of. I, I it's completely... Star Trek Adventure, yes. And they pulled people out of the audience and put them into, like, uh, you know, um, Hollywood magic visual effects where they – and they had a whole plot with these monsters and creatures and some were Klingons and, yeah. <laughs> if I had known that that was in existence at the time, I definitely would have done everything I could to get out and be a part of it. Yeah. I think they had it at both universals, too. But I know it for sure in L.A. I think it was it ran for a while at Orlando, too. Yeah. Even way back then, when Orlando was probably, you know, brand new. And I've come across since then references to a Star Trek roller coaster in Germany. Yeah, well, they take it, and there, there was one in, um, I want to say the Carowinds, too. Yeah, they just take an exist. either they built one new, or it's an existing one, and they just rebrand it. They just give it a name and paint it, you know, and they pay to get the Trek brand, and... There, there's probably some, I'm, I'm not an I'm not a, an expert on those things, but they're okay. they've been out. If if there's not at least one standing somewhere, there's there's probably they have been out over the years. Sometimes at Paramount owned parks or Cedar Fair owned parks, but the foreign ones would be just a one off, you know, with those owners overseas. Doesn't surprise me though. Well, do you know anything about the Star Trek park that uh, King Hussein has put in and Jordan, or if it's actually happened or not? Uh, there was it got a lot of attention because people thought it was going to be like a, a Star Trek park, and the whole and the idea all along was, you know, the King of Jordan, uh, who who used to be the Crown Prince when he was Crown Prince, was an extra on Voyager and was very was a huge Trek fan, still is, and but, you know, and and he sees it as a you know, and Jordan is a very moderate um, Arab country, Middle East country, uh, even though it's a kingdom, and. Um, he he loved like the idea, you know, the, the Roddenberry vision and the ideals and of uh, Earth that did not blow itself up or kill itself off or poison itself. Right. But the, it's almost like there was an island there in the 80s and 90s when things were a little more subtle in the Middle East, and then the last 10, 15 years. I I think what happened basically, and Star Trek was a tiny. For one thing, he had a park, mm-hmm. a theme park, and Star Trek was not. It was like one little tiny corner. You know, it was like one thing in this. One out of 50 things, you know, was going to be this little Star Trek thing. But it got attention from fandom, from Trek fandom, of course, and online, and it spread. But I think, I, I don't know where the park is. Things just have been so rough in the Middle East the last 10 years, unfortunately. You know, um, with the Syrian civil war right on their doorstep, really, and the Israeli-Palestinian thing flaring up again, unfortunately. Um, it's just kind of, I don't know if they think it would be a little out of taste, you know, or just not. Uh, just not the right thing to do right now. So maybe when things are a little subtle, they'll get back to that. Who knows? Or what the state of, you know. But I don't know that, yeah, they, they had talked about it, and it was, it was announced. So it was off at least out of a few. Hadn't been, wasn't funded, you know, but they had it. They were doing initial planning, and the, the story got out. So I think it's all on hold right now. Well, sure. do you know anything about um, the rumors about there being a uh, expanded Trek land at the Universal theme park? That I had word that that was just some some happy wishful thinking by a few people, or or it was like here's what we could do, and by the time you know it went through the what's the what's the parlor game uh, telephone or yeah. telegraph or whatever yeah yeah by the time it went through three or four hoops it turned into this you know as things happen on, online you know right it's happening it's coming it's coming it's like no. <laughs> Well, folks, so if you're looking for actual Star Trek travel on Earth in this modern era, again, there's Trek Conderoga, the, um, well, there's 
the Trek Tours in Ticonderoga, New York. That's run by, by James Colley. Mm-hmm. And there's um, um, Larry... Uh, oh, the Geek Nation Tours. Geek Nation Tours. Yes. We call it L.A. to Vegas, hashtag L.A. to Vegas, although we're going to be having a, a San Francisco component again uh, next year. And hopefully... Within a week or two, there will be a Truckland Treks page on my website and maybe a standalone uh, for those one-day tours I mentioned that you could, for, for film sites, uh, which, it, which would include studio tours. We, we piggyback with a stu- at Paramount and see some hallowed ground that way, too, as well as you know film sites that are out, in, out around town in the public. Do you go to the um, – or is it still around the um – Mayberry set that popped up in like sitting at the edge of forever. Yeah, no, it's long. It's been gone since the um, the the outdoor part. What they used to call that forty acres. It was the Hogan's Hero Stalag thirteen, and it was Mayberry, which yes got used in sitting on the edge. Also, um, Return of the Archons. It was yeah. the Red Hour City, and and several other so the other uh, Mary. Mary. So um, the outdoor tricycle and all that, and the Grups, but. Um, it's been long gone just because the real estate got so valuable. That was that was Desilu Culver, <laughs> as opposed to Desilu Gower for Gower Street, which is what everybody thinks of as the Desilu property that then got bought out by Paramount and they all merged. But you know, where all the Trek home stages were, but the stages, the sound stages that were in Culver City, which had been it was David O. Selznick. It's where they filmed Gone with the Wind. It's had this long history, and Desilu bought it. And that's where not just those outdoor sets you mentioned, like Mayberry and City on the Edge, <laughs> uh, Floyd's Barbershop, but oh, the sound yeah. stages, I want to say the end of the line of them, like 14 and 15, that's where both pilots were actually built and, and filmed. And then when they started, you know, the cage, and then a year later, Where No Man has gone before. And then when they went to series, they got the bridge and, and the standing sets and brought them up to Desilu, Desilu Gower. Um, and put them on old Desilu numbers uh, nine and ten. Right, right, right. Well, I um, I would suggest um, trying to do a trek tour to Kansas City, but KC was only referenced three times in the series, and it was dismissively each time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's beside the point. Oh well. Um, I guess the only other business that we have with you is. Um, well, not to, not to sound like that, dismissing myself. Um, we didn't don't sound like that, Steve. No, no. <laughs> we didn't bring up um, uh, the track files on uh, the Runberg yes. podcast, which I, I listen to religiously every week. Oh, thank you. So you're a, are you a trackophile spelled with an F? I am indeed. Oh, good. Okay. I heard somebody come up to me and tell me that. I just made my day. It was the first time I'd heard somebody throw it back at me, and I was like, yes, I have a tagline. Okay. I've done rather a bit of contributing to memory off of myself. (laughs) Good. Good. So, so yes, the Trek Files was – I had put off doing my own podcast for – I've guested, you know, like on the Trek FM, on the Ready Room with Chris Jones, and on anybody who asked me like I'm doing right now. Thank you. Um, and they've come and gone over the years, and um, some really, really good ones out there. But I'd always thought that unless I had, I wanted if I did one, I wanted to take it to the next level, or do something that wasn't just. Uh, there are so many good ones out there that I shouldn't. I didn't want to just put more one more on the pile. You know what I mean? So 
I had some ideas that we're still working on, but in the meantime, last year, uh, or late the year before, um, John Champion and Rod Roddenberry came to me and said, we had this idea of going through my dad's, Rod said, going through my dad's papers of all kinds, memos and scripts and letters to people and from him and all that. And um, talking about what's, if there's a nugget in there or a kernel, some are obvious, obviously, and some are a little kind of on a tangent, but but uh, seeing how they all reflect on him and then in turn on Star Trek and even in something from the 60s or 70s or 80s, if it says something about Star Trek or the world today or media, you know, or whatever. And that's that's kind of and there's so much I thought, well, this is we're going to burn through all the cool stuff. But we found some historic pieces and I've tried to make them into news events like the. 1986 premise for Next Generation, they had all ready to go if Gene didn't want to be hands-on and active with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it went back in the bin, and no one knew about it, aside from the four or five, six people and their assistants, I guess, at the time, until we came across it again. So um, so things like that and, uh, and more to come. We're going to get into the 70s and the movies that didn't happen coming up. We're on a hiatus now. I don't know how what your turnaround time is, but hopefully by the time of Vegas, we will be back with our second season opener, uh, which is not – we're not going to open with a bang, but we're going to have some really um, heavy stuff coming. But we're, we have things to do with the animated series. happened was trying to happen even before it happened, and, and older pieces of genes like The Lieutenant, his show before Star Trek that kind of sparked Star Trek, the, the movie about the, the, the uh, Marine base uh, uh, attorney in right. the Jack. Office, uh, and you know, we the last thing we did in season one was a letter he got because of uh, "Have Gun Will Travel" from 1959, thanking him from the American Baptist Convention, which was kind of something we don't think about with Gene. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we have a lot of, and you know, the movies era, the, all the comeback pilots he did in the 70s, and Quester, which led into Data, and uh, and Next Generation's roots, and the first few years before he passed away. Of next generation. So, and, and things they have to say today, one of which was led right into the Discovery pilot. So, you know, it's there and it's easy to get to if you're not a podcast person. You can subscribe if you are, but if you're not, just go to the, the Facebook page, The Track Files, and every week it's a 15, 20 minute, so it's easy to hear. And we put the document we're talking about is there where you can look at it too. So, and it's over before you realize it. You say, that's all there was. I want more, Larry, more. <laughs> well, we, we started getting into work. If it's a big piece, and we've got some big pieces to come, which is not fair. In fact, I want to revisit the 86 memo with a few people. We have guests. Mm-hmm. We've had Doug Drexler. We've had Dorothy Fontana, DC Fontana. Um, we had Dave Rossi, who was Rick Berman's assistant and a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, we just had uh, Andrew Probert, and he'll be back. So, um, so yeah, and we'll be having more guests like that and some of them back with us. Uh, but yes, we, we, we have big chunks of something cool. We're not going to blow through it in one episode. We're going to, which we've done already. We've, we've had uh, one piece. We had three episodes over and had three different guests talk about different parts of it. So, and I'm remembering a year or two ago when on Mission Log, they had on as a guest Will Wheaton and chatted with him about a letter from the archives that Patrick Stewart had written about, uh, written to Gene. So, and that was absolutely 
uh, spellbinding. So, and and you're doing the same thing each and every week. So, right. Hopefully, and John Champion is my is my uh, my regular guest if we don't have another guest. So I'm not trying to say he's you know like uh, uh, you know chop chives or something there or whatever. Right. Chop liver. Right. <laughs> he's, not, right. he's not number two, but he's my go-to guest. If we don't happen to have one, uh, but we do, we, we do several at a sittings. That's the one handy thing about them being just being 15, 20 minutes. If I have somebody, we can do three or four or five episodes with them. So, right. well, th- things are winding down um, because I did promise to get you out of here at a reasonable time. <laughs> and the last thing I have left is Stevie's uh, tough but not too tough Star Trek trivia challenge. Oh no! And I sit here and I say, but it's Larry Nemechek. It's Doctor Trek himself. How can I stump him with a Star Trek trivia challenge? It wouldn't be too hard after all these years and all this out there, but go, you know. I came up with some questions about doctors on Star Trek. Oh. Or okay. I could give you my standard go-to silliness um, questions, which really are only sort of about Star Trek. Which would you prefer? Uh, the silliness, or how about we? Can we do maybe a couple of both? Okay. Would that would that break up? Would that melt down the internet if we did a couple of both? No, it would not. Okay. Okay. Well, dude, throw me your doctor questions first because they sound like they're tougher. Okay, actually, I'll toss in one from the silliness first. Oh, okay. With the doctor theme. <clears throat> Starts off. Before being cast as Doctor Beverly Crusher on Next Generation, Gates McFadden was a well-known Hollywood choreographer who worked frequently with Jim Henson and the Muppets. Among her credits is the choreography for the 1986 fantasy musical Labyrinth. Which pop culture musical icon known as a star man was a star of Labyrinth? Oh, you went that way. Well, David Bowie. Yes. David Bowie. Okay, I always do that. Yeah. And then I have more trivia questions along those lines. Um, Bernie Casey appeared in the two-part Deep Space Nine episode, The Maquis, as Lieutenant Commander Cal Hudson. Mm-hmm. Earlier in his career... He co-starred in the 1976 sci-fi film *The Man Who Fell to Earth*. What pop culture musical icon known as a star man was a star of *The Man Who Fell to Earth*? Oh, it was David Bowie too, right? That was David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> Ethiopian model Iman appeared in *Star Trek VI: The, Nick, the Undiscovered Country* as the Comloid Martia. What pop culture musical icon known as a star man was Iman married to? David. <laughs> okay, this is yes. <laughs> Ditto. One might detect a theme here. I might. <laughs> More we... obvious than a Star Trek park. Okay. Do we dare continue? Iggy Pop appeared in the Deep Space Nine, the magnificent Ferengi, as the Vorta Yelgren. Before embarking on his acting career, Iggy was a well-known musician who collaborated on 11 albums with which pop culture musical icon known as a star man. Okay, wait a minute. I got this. I got this. I got this. Um, um, um... Uh, Bowie David. Oh wait, wait, I've got that backwards. Bowie David. No, no, no. <laughs> That's it. Oh, okay. Well, that was painless. Oscar. Was painless. Oscar and Emmy Award-winning actor, singer, songwriter, musician Paul Williams appeared in the Voyager episode Virtuoso as the Komar Koru. Among his many compositions was a song called "Fill Your Heart," which pop culture musical icon known as the Star Man recorded a version of Fill Your Heart for the 1971 album Hunky Dory. Okay, see, it was not Johnny Cash. No. Uh, oh, uh, wasn't Bill Haley in the Comets? Mm. So I'm going to go with David Bowie. That's correct. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. 
And the sixth bonus question on that quiz. You which, can't see me, but I'm jumping up and down, and the vibration, I hope, isn't messing up the microphone. Oh, so far, so good. Okay. Which pop culture musical icon known as the Starman never actually appeared in Star Trek himself, but probably should have? <laughs> Among a long line of people, David Bowie. Now we're looking for uh, Paul Stanley, the Starman from Kiss. No. Wait. Oh. Okay. Wait. The judges <laughs> say, yes, we'll accept David Bowie. Oh, okay. Thank you, judges. Here's a little, here's a little slip of latinum for everybody. Okay. Oh, okay. So the doctor's questions. <clears throat> what was the name of... Uh, do- uh, no, wait, wait. What happened to... We'll do a couple of both... Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. What was the name of the uh, Nancy Crater's husband, the doctor, in the band trap? Uh, Dr. Crater. First name? I'm trying to think. Uh, um, not Bill. It's something plain. Robert. Robert, yeah. I was going to get there. If you See, you, you said it too fast. Okay. Yeah. Who was the doctor that created the genetic replicator, which was used to replace Worf's spine after it was damaged by a falling barrel in the episode Ethics? Oh, my God. Yeah, the doctor with the battle Dr. Crusher. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I haven't, I haven't like, waded through that episode in ages. But I can see her face clear as day. That's Dr. Toby Russell. Yes. That's right. And I don't remember the net title of the episode. I didn't jot it down. Well, when, do the question, and maybe I'll at least know the title if I don't think it. Who was the Andorian surgeon ch- who was nominated for the uh, Carrington Award in 2371 in competition oh. with um, Dr. Bashir? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, I don't know the Andorian's name. Okay. Dr. Guy Patrell. Yes, yes, Dr. D. Patrell. You're right, Ken. Who was the Romulan doctor that encountered the USS Voyager via a micro wormhole in 2351? Oh, 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 shoot. Uh, Early Voyager. Yeah, it's Von Armstrong. Yeah. (laughs) How was that? (laughs) Uh, Dr. Is there an apostrophe? Yes. Dr. like Ramel or something or Morel or Remor. Remor, hey, okay. Yeah. Who was the doctor that Fox had befriended while taking part in the interspecies medical exchange program who later oh, took sh- charge of Cold Station twelve? Right. Doctor Did does his name have three syllables? His first name does. Oh shoot. Um see I don't get it I I don't I we just did stellar cartographies. Oh, I have to mention stellar cartography. You do. I have to mention that everybody needs to go pre-order it right now. The new updated version will be out October 9th, but if you go pre-order it now and get the count up high at Amazon, it's a cheap price, and that means we'll have more cool stuff like that down the line, the bigger the pre-order number is. So everybody go pre-order. If you didn't get it in 2013, this is totally updated for the first year of Discovery, and probably about two or three dozen original series uh, stars and planets that were accidentally omitted from the 2002 book and then the 2013 maps and book. And we're still on um, uh, uh, the uh, doctor that doctor that flocks wrote to mm. shoot, shoot, shoot. This is making me mad. Now what I was trying to say was I've been more into stars and planets lately than I have been into um, people and plots. Okay. Uh, 
And just a reminder to the listeners that my birthday is in late November, so that October release date is perfect for those who are um, thinking about perhaps getting me a gift. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 when it came out, Richard Riley played him. That's correct. He was Dr. Jeremy Lucas. Lucas. Okay. The final question then. <laughs> Who was the orthodontist that saved the Woodstock Musical Festival in 1969? Oh, we had a very Jewish name on Voyager with Frakes and with uh, with uh, Newton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Lenny Goldstein or something or uh, whatever. Maury Gold Ginsburg. Okay, Maury Ginsburg. Yeah. I'm trying to move your show along here, so I'm. <laughs> Trying not to take up a half hour while I fall, I, my brain actually clicks back to it. So, yes. I understand. And I'm trying to move along, too, so you can get out of here on time. Oh, that's okay. But I have so many questions about so much else that hopefully you'll come back on at some time and we can talk more about, um, like, your experiences with Star Trek Continues and stuff. Oh, okay. I'd love to, yeah. Star Trek Continues is like this golden, hazy, glow, good feel thing that people are tucking under their belts these days. It's kind of cute. It's kind of yeah. it's wonderful that to me, I, I don't think I've ever heard a negative thing said about it, or maybe they just didn't say it to my face, but um, it's all good. <laughs> well, have you it's watched a, any of the other Star Trek fan films that are out there? Uh, I have. You know, I was in. I played a Tellarite in a vignette for mm -hmm. uh, Phase Two that was would have been lost, but then John Kerrigan, who was the lead in it, got it together and saved it, and I love that experience. And I've seen a lot of. Um, there's a little, there's a fun little one that went for about a season, called uh, Red Shirt Diaries that I hope everybody yeah. goes and finds. I got to play Drunk McCoy in that toward the end, and I've seen bits and pieces of, of uh, beyond uh, those. Oh, the Farragut's, you know, a lot of folks I wound up knowing uh, on those. So yeah, what's interesting is since the guidelines came down, there's a, there's a new crop of people who are doing fan films with you know in the 15 minute uh, format. And they're just making a big go of that and just doing it without complaining uh, or disappointment, I should say. And so who knows? I don't I, you know, we, we've gone from one era to another and the pendulum, as I always say, keeps swinging and and we'll see what comes down the road. But uh, right. Yeah, I, I love all fan films. The mom and pop ones that are done in the backyard or in the garage all the way up to, you know, continues and some of the other. Yeah, I just mentioned to plug the ones that I'm in. <clears throat> mm. We'll go right ahead. I'm sorry. I got together with my friend uh, Vance Major and was in The Rise of the Tribbles and Around the World and Forever, but that's beside the point. Mm-hmm. Um, no, never beside the point. It's there. Be loud. Be proud. Right. Okay, I do uh, – I'm about done. Give me just a moment and I'll wrap things up and we can say goodbye. So thanks go out again to the remarkable Larry Nemechek as well as to Adam Mullen, who composed the theme tune and who helped me figure out how to put a podcast together. Adam co-hosts, along with Bill Allen, a podcast on the Trexphere Network called The Final Frontier, which focuses on fan productions, fan films, and otherwise. Thanks also go to James Hams, who's in charge of Trexphere, who's eventually going to put this on there. Omega Directive is available currently at iTunes and podcast.com. And if you like what you've heard, please go subscribe at iTunes. Give us a positive rating. Leave a positive review. If you'd like to contact me personally with any comments, questions, or concerns, Omega Directive is available on Facebook. And I'm available on Twitter at 
at well underscore Steve. Likewise, thank you for tuning in, and don't take any wooden quatloos. Larry, thank you. It's been a blast. Steve, thank you so much for having me on. Good luck as the podcast grows. Starting off is always rough, I know, but uh, you're on your way. So trek well. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.